Hey, welcome to The Revolutionized Mind, a platform about all things mental health. I'm your host, Angelica Galuzzo, and on this show, we use real stories and eye-opening conversations to make you feel less alone and a little more optimistic about what's ahead of you. Come on a journey with me. Bring your most authentic self, and let's revolutionize the mind. Reforming society, repairing your mentality, restoring your life. This is The Revolutionized Mind. Happy World Suicide Prevention Day, everybody. Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode because, as you know, suicide is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. And just the fact that you are listening to this episode right now not only puts yourself, but puts all of society one step closer in the right direction of really understanding the topic of suicide, learning how to better address it becoming more aware of the warning signs, and just ultimately how to support someone else who might be going through it as well as yourself. So this conversation really covers all of that. Uh, Lots of trigger warnings here. I'm going to say we do talk about suicide and self-harm in great detail, so if this is something that might negatively impact you, it might not be right for you at this time, maybe save it and come back to it at a later date. But if you do feel like you have the capacity and are willing to dive into these heavier topics today, I really, really encourage you to do so. So please just take a second now to acknowledge where you're at before continuing on. And I also do just want to note that although September is Suicide Awareness Month and September 10th, today is World Suicide Prevention Day, Suicide is something that affects us every day of the year, every month of the year, so this is a conversation that needs to happen on a consistent basis. It's something that we all have more learning to do, and we as a society still just have such a long way to go to really get to where we need to be, because as much as we want to talk about intervention and stopping things when they happen, we kind of want to focus more on the prevention things and stopping it before it even becomes a problem, you know? So there are several layers to this conversation, and today's guest is absolutely incredible. She's someone who really specializes and has expertise in the crisis intervention field. So we talk a lot about what a crisis is, how to actually take action towards helping that individual, how to actually take care of yourself when you're supporting someone else, because that's a big topic as well. And we also get into some different aspects of self-harm as well, which is something that I feel is incredibly misunderstood. So I think Laura does an amazing job of really just breaking that down and helping us understand those different aspects of self-harm when it comes to the topic of suicide. And hopefully you'll understand more of that when we get to that part. So along with the trigger warnings, I did also just want to highlight that there are several resources linked in the episode notes. So please definitely be sure to check that out if anything comes up for you after listening to this, or just maybe bookmark them, keep them just in case things come up for you down the road. I think it's always important to know what kind of resources are available to us. And when we're in the middle of a maybe hectic situation, we're not always able to take the time to find that resource. So it's better to do that when you're in a better state of mind and can kind of just keep that at easy access. 
And last thing here in the introduction, I did just want to emphasize one really important resource to me that I think can be so useful. It has been for thousands all across the world, and that is Jack.org's Be There Certificate. So this is relatively new, but has seen incredible success. They've partnered with Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation, so it's gotten a lot of great attraction. And it's a free certificate available in English, French, and Spanish, and takes less than two hours to complete. And you get a fancy little certificate to say that you are Be There certified. And it talks all about Jack.org's five golden rules, which I've mentioned before in this podcast earlier on when I did Supporting Someone episode back with my ex, um, one of my first few episodes actually. So the five golden rules are one, say what you see, two, show you care, three, hear them out, four, know your role, and five, connect to help. So this course really just outlines those different stages and helps you better understand how you can actually support someone who might be in not just a crisis situation, maybe just a poor mental health state. So that is a really amazing course and something that we can all do to better help people who are struggling. And I think it's really, really important. So with all that being said, again, thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. This one really, really means a lot to me. So I appreciate you and your support more than you know. I hope you enjoy the conversation and are able to take several key pieces of information away. And if it does help you, feel free to send it to someone else so we can help keep the conversation going and progressing in a positive way. So today I'm here with Laura Bruno, who is a therapist that has a lot of experience working in crisis situations. So that is going to be the topic of today's episode. We're going to talk about what a crisis is and how to actually help somebody who might be in a crisis. So before we get going, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about who you are and maybe some of your past experiences? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, any opportunity I have to talk about crisis, I'm really excited. So thanks for that. Um, so my career, most of my career has been in the crisis field. I was a crisis worker for over 10 years with a program called COAST, which is a crisis outreach and support team. And it's kind of a unique crisis program because we work in partnership with the police. So it's a social worker and an officer. And there's a couple of different roles. You're either answering a phone, like the crisis line, you're going out in the community with the officer kind of as a non-emergency. And then there's another role where you're actually responding to 911 calls. So kind of all different um, areas of crisis, if you will, or times of crisis. And currently I'm actually a registered psychotherapist. And so I'm out of the crisis world for the past about five years, but I definitely love crisis work. Um, so again, super excited to be able to talk about that. Awesome. Yeah. And it's nice to have somebody who is experienced and an expert in that field, because I think you can offer both personal and professional advice. And I think a big one is just defining what a crisis situation is. So if we can start there and maybe explain how it's a little bit different from just simply having poor mental health. Yeah, of course. You know, I think everyone may have a different definition of crisis. And from all my experience in the crisis field, the way that I defined it that I found helpful was 
A crisis is when someone doesn't have the tools to manage what's going on for them. So that can look so different depending on each individual. So when I would answer the crisis line, I would have calls from people who literally are in crisis because they can't, and this is a true story, they couldn't plunge their toilet. Okay, so that for them was a crisis. Then on the other end of the spectrum, I've had people who call and say, I have a gun to my head, you have three minutes, go ahead. Right? So you do get a wide variety. But for me, and what I think is really important is you don't minimize someone else's crisis. It's not your job to define what a crisis is. If they are feeling that they're in crisis, that means that they're saying, help, I don't have the skills to manage X, whatever X is, and I need your help. So that's kind of the working definition that I use um, and have always used and has allowed me to, uh, I would say, stay empathetic, right? When you're supporting individuals who you may think like, oh my gosh, you're rolling your eyes. Really, you're calling me because your toilet is um, backed up. But yeah, for them, that was the crisis. And are there any, I guess, like signs or distinctions that we can look out for unless they explicitly say like, the toilet situation I'm in a crisis I'm calling you because I don't know how to I guess regulate what's going on but if we're just talking to a friend and they seem a little off like how can we actually tell if it's something more yeah well I think I mean that's that's a good question and I think it is different for everyone but the idea kind of going back to this idea of what's a crisis and what's not um I don't know if you've ever heard of this idea of the window of tolerance is that something that you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I'll just kind of quickly explain it if anyone listening is saying, what the heck is that? So it's this idea that you are able to manage when you're within this box, right? So literally picture in your head a window and everyone's window looks very different. Some people have big windows, some people have small windows and certain things will determine the size of your window. So if you've had previous trauma or you don't have great support system, you don't have good coping skills, your window may be smaller. If you have a great support system, let's say maybe you're in therapy, your window may be bigger. And the idea is when you're within your window, you feel like, hey, I can manage, right? I feel like even if I'm just on close to the edge of my window, I still feel like I can, I got this. So again, kind of going back to crisis, it's when you're outside your window. And that can look so different for different people. And so some people will go in their window, they may go above their window, which means they're in this hyper arousal state, which means that they're showing symptoms which would be consistent with anxiety. So let's say they're, maybe they're pacing, or maybe they're sweating, or they're shaking. Maybe they're really irritable or constantly worried, right? Those would be kind of signs or symptoms to look out for. But then there's other individuals that go outside their window and they're in a hypo arousal state, which would be similar to if you want to think like depression. So this would be like the low mood, lack of energy, lack of motivation. Maybe they're sleeping more, that kind of thing, right? So a long-winded answer to your (laughs) short question, but it can look very different. For everyone. So having that idea of crisis isn't always this intense 
burst of emotion, which I think a lot of people think. And it can also be kind of the other side, that hypo arousal state where it's more this quiet, isolated presentation. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. And especially just highlighting that it is going to look different for everybody based on so many different factors, who they are, who they're around, what's going on in their lives, the environment, there's so many things to consider. So given all that, I think many people might have had experience with somebody in a crisis situation or just in a situation that requires some assistance. Um, So how can we, like, just as general human beings, not professionals, realistically approach or support someone who may be in a crisis situation? Yeah, I think the first important thing is the distinction you just made there, which is, hey, let's just approach this as humans, right? Let's not put the pressure on ourselves that we have to fix it, we have to solve it, that we have to be the professional, right? Because there are professionals out there to do that. So I always try and liken it to like um, first aid right? If you saw someone and they were bleeding, you would do what you could in order to try and support them. You're not going to try and stitch them up because you're not the doctor, right? But you're going to do what you know how to do um, to your best ability. And so we want to kind of approach people in crisis in the same situation. You don't have to be the, the quote unquote doctors that are going to stitch them up, but we can at least be the first point of contact and then eventually get them to professionals. So sometimes just giving yourself permission to say, okay, I don't have to be it, right? I can be the first one, but I don't have to be the one that solves this. Taking that pressure off of yourself. And I think the most important thing though, as I highlighted before, is just simply not to judge their crisis, right? You really don't want to minimize someone's experience and just because it's not a crisis for you or it wouldn't be a crisis for you doesn't mean it's not a crisis for them I would really encourage people to not go into fixer mode which is so hard especially when it's someone we really have a close relationship with because we love them we care about them we don't want to see them hurting but when we jump right into fixer mode we actually can do more damage because that person is getting the message of like, I'm too much for you right now and you can't handle me right now. So I better snap out of it. And so just validating and really the most important thing is to slow it down. It's kind of the opposite of what we think with crisis where we think we need to quick, quick, hurry, hurry. The best crisis intervention is actually about slowing things down and letting the person feel validated and seen and providing empathy and doing all those good, juicy, active listening skills so that they can first feel safe emotionally. And then you can go into kind of the problem-solving side of things. And going along with that, do you have any examples of, I guess, like good supporting statements or simple questions you can ask somebody in a crisis situation that would have a good effect and not make them spiral? Yes, for sure. I think the most important thing you can say to someone is, I'm here. I'm right here with you. You and I are going to figure this out together. And just letting someone know that you're not going to abandon them in their time of need. You're not promising that you're going to fix it. 
You're not saying I'm going to make this all better for you. You just simply say, I'm willing to be here with you while you go through this. And you and I are going to figure this out together, whatever that quote unquote solution may be. It may be just to sit there until the, you know, really intense emotion passes. It may be to get someone to the hospital because there's some safety concerns. It all, it all depends. But first and foremost, your, your presence and your like authentic presence is the most important thing. Yeah, and I know we were chatting earlier about our ASSIST training, which for those who don't know, it's a suicide intervention course. Um, that in that course, they really teach you, you know, to not fear the word suicide, to ask if we think that suicide might be in the picture for this individual who's in crisis, to ask, do you have plans of suicide? And then to really get deep into their mind, their thoughts, their plan, their action. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's for general people who are not trained, that's a very intense topic and I guess thing to dive into. But how can we, I don't know, like I guess from a more general population standpoint, like address the topic of suicide if it is deemed that like that's what the crisis situation is revolved around? Yeah, I think um, one of the important things that you can you can do if you're wanting to assist is just become more familiar with potential warning signs for suicide so that you know, or maybe feel a bit more comfortable asking, right? So if you're hearing someone say the words like hopeless or worthless, or I have no purpose, or people are giving away their possessions, or um, they're making end of life plans, or they're looking into their insurance policies or things like that, right? So first of all, knowing some of the warning signs so that your brain has been going, aha, okay, maybe they're thinking of suicide. I now need to ask, which can be super scary, right? The first time that you do it. I remember in my training, even just saying the word suicide was like, I tripped over it. It was, it was really emotionally charged. Now, 10 plus years in the field of doing that every day, it's really neutralized. So I would become familiar with the warning signs. Um, I know it sounds silly, but honestly, practicing saying, are you having thoughts of suicide? Just saying that out loud to yourself so that the first time you have to say it isn't in the crisis situation, right? You kind of prep yourself for that, if you will. And then, yes, of course, you need to ask directly about suicide. There's this. Uh, myth that's out there I don't know where it came from but it's the biggest myth and it prevents people from actually asking and that is if I ask this person and they weren't thinking about suicide maybe I'm going to put that idea in their head and then if they do do it it's my fault and so that's the biggest myth out there I can tell you from experience from 10 plus years in the field of talking to people who were suicidal every single day not one of them has ever yelled at me for asking. Not one of them has ever said to me, oh, you know what? I wasn't thinking about it, but now I am. Thanks for the idea, right? Majority of the time, the individual is so relieved because you are saying, I'm okay with this. I'm okay to talk about this. I'm a safe person to talk with this. That's not too much for me. And so there's often this sense of, relief that they have. Um, 
I think I don't remember your question. See, I just start talking about <laughs> crisis and then I ramble on because there's so much to say. No, you answered it. Just, I guess, <laughs> the question of asking, are you thinking about suicide was kind of where I was going with that, which I think you got. Yeah, but I, I think, too, what's really important um, is to differentiate the difference between self-harm and suicide. And so we don't want to use the words like, oh, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Right? Because self-harm is very different than suicide. So self-harm would be the deliberate destruction of body tissue without the intention to die. Right? So we see that probably the most common that we know is a cutting. But suicide could be with, or it is with the intention to die. And so those things are very different. So when you use the word like, are you thinking of harming or hurting yourself? You're actually only asking about self-harm. You're not actually asking specifically about suicide. So using the words like, are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you having thoughts of wanting to die? Are you having thoughts of suicide? These kind of emotionally charged words that you want to shy away from are actually the words you need to move towards and actually use in order to ask directly. And is there anything that I guess you've learned through your experience with how to actually like differentiate the self-harm and suicide? Because I know a lot of therapists have said like self-harm is not always with the intent to die. It's just a relief from pain for the most part, or just some sort of coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a supporter, I guess, if you do see signs of self-harm or substance misuse, things like that, how do you address it in a way that isn't like in a controlling way as more of a supporting way of saying that you want to try to get this person some help? I have two answers for that. Um, The first is probably the most helpful question that if you're trying to differentiate or trying to help the individual understand what's happening, because they may not even understand what's going on, right? They may be so emotionally charged and disconnected that it's, they just know that when I do this, I get a relief or I feel better. And so asking the individual, is it that you want to die or is it that you want the pain to end? Because having thoughts of suicide is a very normal response to intense emotional pain. And people don't talk about that. And it's such a shame because that only increases the stigma around suicide. If more people were honest about their thoughts of suicide without the fear of getting locked up, which is a whole other topic, um, I really think that having thoughts of suicide, suicidal ideation would be more normalized and there would be less shame around it. Because someone has a thought of suicide because it's the normal response of, I'm in so much pain, I need to get out. And so our brain is like this problem-solving machine, and it's just kind of shooting out different ideas. It may say, go for a walk. It may say, call your friend. It may say, kill yourself. But asking the individual, do you want to die, or do you simply want the pain to end, can really help to differentiate and then speak to that that side of them if they say, well, no, I just want the pain to end. Then you're able to speak to that side of saying, okay, so there's part of you that, that wants to be here, and that can instill some hope. And then you can start talking about the pain and figure out resources or how to, to manage that pain and where to get them connected so they can process that pain. And so that's a really 
important question. I love that question. And an assist, they call it the turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they do answer that, that they just want the pain to end, that's like your way in. It's a little door to say, okay, they do have hope. There is a way to try and help them. And similarly, if they mention they have a kid they love, they have a partner, like so many things while you're trying to, I guess, console or just support this person. Those are things that you should look out for as they're talking as if they have, I guess, that one factor keeping them alive, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Jumping off of what what you just said about the, we call them protective factors, right? Reasons why people are are still around and still want to live. And for so many people, it's their pets, which is, um, I always found surprising working in the field. But pets are always such a good um, reason to keep people around. So if you are supporting someone who's having these thoughts of suicide and they're saying, oh, I have nothing to live for. And if they have a pet, that might be a good resource to kind of tap into and say, well, who would look after Mr. Whiskers or whatever the pet's name is? Um, So that's always something that can be helpful to tap into. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess like running along with that, what are some things that we absolutely should not do in a crisis? Because I know there are several that could make things go the other way. Yeah. So again, I will be like a broken record. We're not trying to judge or minimize their crisis. That's first and foremost, because we actually, we need to speak to their emotional brain because without getting into too much science, that's literally the only part of the brain that's being lit up in that moment is like that, that brainstem, that survival brain. So we want to, we want to approach it and make safety the priority because that's what the brainstem is concerned with, which is safety. So the thing we don't want to do is try and skip and talk to that, that cortex, that outer brain, that logical, rational brain, because it's not actually online until we've created safety within the brainstem. But that's what most people do is, oh, okay, we'll fix it. We'll just do X, Y, and Z, right? And the person isn't receiving it. And logically, it makes sense, but there's that disconnect. So what you absolutely don't want to do is jump right into problem-solving mode or judge or minimize their crisis. Um, We also don't want to shame people into action. And, you know, it's it can be difficult because you can get frustrated because you're saying it's so clear. It's so obvious. You just have to do X and then this would all be better. And then it's, well, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do this? It's so easy, right? Just, just do it. Or you're so selfish. Aren't you thinking of other people? There's something seriously wrong with you. These, these statements that, um, are obviously not helpful when someone is in crisis. Well, they're not helpful anytime, but especially when someone's in crisis. And so again, we really want to slow it down in crisis, but as we slow it down, our frustration can go up because it can take a while. So you have to try and remain regulated, right? You have to be that calm presence so that other person can tap into that. So if you're finding that you're getting like really agitated or escalated, let's say maybe there's two of you trying to support someone, maybe you just tap out and take a step back and then regulate yourself and let the other person kind of take over. And then the last thing I would say is don't abandon them. (laughs) 
right? This goes back to kind of my first point of the most important thing you can do is just be present and just hold space for them. So the last thing you want to do is is leave them. Essentially, you're telling them, you're too much. This is too much. I can't handle it. Yeah, and that's, um, we're going to get into a lot on the supporting person. It's very emotional. It's intense. Um what would be the protocols for actually, I guess, contacting like professional support? Because obviously this would be an immediate time sensitive situation, mm-hmm. but say you can't be present with the person you have somewhere else you need to be. Like, would you call 911? Would you try to get in contact with a therapist? I know it's very situation based, but is there any general rule of thumb on that? Well, this is kind of why at Coast, the program I worked for exists, right? So most um, most cities or most regions would have a 24-hour crisis line. So I would always try and start there unless there's immediate risk. So if there's no immediate risk, if they don't have a gun to their head or they are not holding a knife saying, I'm about to slice my wrist, let's just say they're saying, I'm really having thoughts of, of suicide. I feel like I want to... Um, go for a walk and walk into traffic, but they're on the phone with you, you know, they're safe, you know, they're in the house, right? And you're not with them. What you can do is call a crisis line and say, look, here's the situation. Let them, the professionals, again, take that pressure off of you of I have to decide and let the professionals be the ones to kind of guide you and let you know next steps. Now, 911, if there's immediate danger, you don't have a crisis line or anytime if you need to, that's, that's what it's there for. Right. And the call will get triaged accordingly. The dispatcher, it will show up on the queue and for the officers accordingly. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers that question. I know it's, it's different everywhere, but. And just to clarify for any listeners. So coast, is that just something in the Niagara region or where is that? Yeah. So, other regions across Canada um, have a COAST program or they have uh, like an MCR, so Mobile Crisis Response Program, which is when the social worker is responding to the 911 calls with the officer. So it just depends kind of on, on where you are. But there's also like the stress center numbers. Um, so if you're not sure, I always tell people one of the most important numbers I think you can have in your phone is just program a crisis number in your phone so that when you're in crisis, you're not, oh, what is it? Where do I have to go? Like, it's just in there. You automatically know 911. You're not going to remember this 1-800 number, but if you have it in your phone as just crisis, then it's accessible to you and you can utilize it when needed. Yeah, I think that's a great point and a really good tip to just have it on you because especially if it is like an intense situation, you're not going to be able to pull out Google and start trying to find which one's the best one to help you right now. So it's better to do all that (laughs) research when you're in a good state of mind, whether it's for you or for somebody that you're supporting. Mm -hmm, For sure. And so going back to the supporter a little bit, what role does self-care play in these high emotion situations? Because obviously that is a lot to take on. Yeah, I think self-care plays a role in both, right? In the helper, so the supporter, and the helpee, if you will, the one receiving support. Um, Self-care is going to play a huge role in both of those. And again, going back to this idea of that window of tolerance. 
So self-care, what it does is actually is going to expand that window. And so if you, you know, have had a really hard life and you've experienced lots of trauma and you have a small window, it doesn't have to stay that way, right? With things like self-care paired with many other pieces, but your window can expand. So I think self-care is everything for, for both of those roles. And I think it's important too, to remember that self-care is so different for everyone. And I like to think of self-care in kind of five categories. So there's either stillness, movement, nutrition, nature, or self-expression. And so being able to, again, proactively know, hey, which one of these actually makes me feel regulated? Which one of these, when I engage in it, makes me feel like I get back inside my window? And again, which one of these works when I'm in a hyper-aroused state where I'm kind of more anxious to get me back down? And which one of these works when I'm in a hypo-aroused state, kind of that low space to kind of get me back up? So if you're aware of this kind of proactively, then after, let's say, you've been involved in a crisis situation, you now can apply these self-care tips or management or strategies kind of reactively. And it's not, it's not guessing. It's, I know what works for me, right? So you have an easier time kind of applying those strategies and getting back within that window and feeling more regulated back at like your baseline and less um, long-term effects of I don't say trauma or less long-term effects of the crisis because when you're the supporter that can take a toll on you right and so the quicker you can kind of get back in your window the less long-term effects it will have I really like those five categories of self-care that's something I'm gonna remember because I normally just say like you know like your mind body soul try to do something that hits and I like what you said about like you're not guessing which one you want to do. It's that self-awareness piece. It's understanding today I'm tired. I don't want to do movement. Maybe I want to do something that's more related to self-expression to connect to myself. Mm-hmm. And it's really just doing these things with intention is such a key aspect of self-care. It's not just, you know, bubble baths and a glass of wine. It's so much deeper than that. And I think those pillars are really important things to remember. Yeah, I don't know how bubble baths became like the face of self-care, if you will. (laughs) But I, you know, when you say self-care, everyone gets this image probably of like candles and bubble baths and wine or, and, and for some people that does it for them. And that's awesome. I am not one of those people. I need movement. I need to kind of discharge all that surge of energy that comes from that crisis situation. Um, So sitting in a bubble bath after I've been kind of escalated is like torture for me um, because it just takes too long for me to kind of come down. Whereas if I go and do a workout, that kind of intensity, again, probably from being an athlete and training in, in that way, right? My body is just used to kind of expelling energy in that way. So I know for me, that's what works. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I get like anxiety attacks sitting in a bath. I always try so hard. I'm like, I'm going to try to relax today, but just being (laughs) still and like, I guess it feels like you're forcing yourself into a self-care for me and it's just, it doesn't work for me and it's not my thing. I definitely prefer the movement. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I guess like, I guess tying everything together, I know this is a bit of a lengthy and broad question, but we'll start with the healthy, we'll call them. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have any advice or words of wisdom for anyone who may be currently struggling with self-harm or suicidal ideation? Yeah, I think first and foremost, getting this idea of that there's nothing wrong with you if you're having these thoughts, right? To stop shaming yourself for that. To recognize that these thoughts are a result of something. So what is the root? What is the root of these thoughts? And more often than not, it is this intense emotional pain. And so when you're able to Give yourself permission to say, okay, I'm having these thoughts. It doesn't mean I'm quote unquote crazy. It doesn't mean that I need to be locked up because there's lots of individuals who struggle with thoughts of suicide daily that don't need to be hospitalized. Um, And you know what? Maybe I'll just take this opportunity to maybe differentiate that a little bit. Um, And if someone is struggling with thoughts of suicide or self-harm, it's helpful to kind of categorize it in this way to figure out what level of risk you're at. So there's a big difference between having thoughts to having urges to actually acting. And so if you're trying to determine what's going on for you, or if you're trying to support someone, you want to ask them, is it that you're having thoughts of suicide or self-harm? And are those thoughts active or passive? Meaning, Is it kind of like, oh, I wish I don't wake up in the morning? Or is it more of, I want to go jump off a bridge, right? So if they're just simply having thoughts, how often are they having those thoughts? Um, Do they ruminate on them? Do they kind of pop in and out? Or do they maybe then turn into the next level, which would be urges, which is a heightened level of risk, right? The thought is now paired with this urge. And in the urges, often we see, you know, them feeling really compelled to move towards this. So maybe they're making plans. Maybe they're searching ways to to do this. Maybe they're usually just like researching, right? Figuring out a plan. And then the action stage, which is obviously the highest level of risk, would be maybe they're going out and they're buying rope. Or maybe they're going and looking for the key to the gun cabinet, right? They're actually taking active steps towards completing their plan. So if you or someone you know is struggling, ask, are they having thoughts, which is low risk? Are they having urges, which would be a medium risk? Or are they having action? Are they taking actions towards this, which would be a heightened risk? So I think to answer your question, words of wisdom, is it's okay and you want to kind of self-assess or call a crisis line and have them help you assess kind of your level of risk and know that just because you have thoughts doesn't mean you have to be locked up doesn't mean you have to go to a hospital there's so many people that go to the hospital with thoughts of suicide and then get turned away and say you're fine go Because the criteria to be admitted is that you have to be a danger to yourself, a danger to others, or unable to care for yourself. And that danger to self, there's lots of different categories. They're going to assess 
um, you know, do you, do you have a plan? Do you have a timeline? Is there intent? All of these things. So, yeah, I think I rambled on there a little bit, but I think I answered the question. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for, I guess, making that differentiation between low, medium, and high, because I think it is important, as a lot of people do kind of find themselves somewhere along that spectrum, and they don't really know where they're at internally, um, as well as people around them. You know, if maybe a family member knows that they're struggling and having thoughts, they might think it's more active than it is and be more concerned walking around eggshells, and that might actually make it worse. So mm -hmm. I think it just helps with that understanding of knowing where you're at, what some of your triggers might be to avoid them so that you don't go farther down that spectrum. Um, and I like what you said there at the beginning, just reminding yourself, like, you're not, quote unquote, crazy or weak for having these things or participating in self-harm behaviors. It's just something you're doing to cope. It's something that's happening to you naturally. It's some of those thoughts just kind of come and go. So I think those affirmations and treating it with um, some love and care is definitely a good place to start. Yeah. And I think too, just speaking to specifically the self-harm side of things, recognizing that it's actually really reinforcing, right? And because it helps you to to avoid. It helps you to escape. You're, you're doing this. There's all different reasons why individuals self harm, but I would say most of people that that I have experienced with, it's to to numb, to cope, to shift. Right. So either they're feeling too much and want to feel less, or they're feeling nothing and want to feel something. And so it works. And so it's really reinforcing. So for someone who doesn't self harm, they're feeling dysregulated. And they may go for a run and they think, oh, I feel great after. That was great. Well, it's the same thing with individuals who self-harm. Physiologically, their body shifts out of that state. And so the difference is the runner feels great about themselves, but the individual who has self-harmed now has the shame or regret and all these other difficult emotions to deal with. But recognizing that, self-harm specifically is really reinforcing because you get that you get that high just as the runner does you get that endorphin you get that physiological shift I really really appreciate you saying that because I think self-harm is such a misperceived topic um, and as somebody who did struggle with it in the past I think so many people just have a really hard time understanding why they do it, what kind of relief they get from it. Like you said, whether you're running away or you're trying to feel something, like there are so many things that you're trying to get out of it and it works, which is, I guess, the good and bad thing, depending on mm -hmm. what side you're coming from. But you do get that relief and that's why so many people do it. That's why it becomes a repeated coping mechanism because it's reliable. It's always there for you. Obviously, it's not a let's call it positive coping mechanism you would prefer something more movement related maybe yoga like all these typical things but it's a process of unlearning some of those quick distracting behaviors that you've been so used to and I think we're seeing a lot more as well like just on social media of people saying that it's bad to call coping mechanisms positive or negative because self-harm would be deemed negative mm -hmm. but it's the only thing you knew at that time it's what helped you survive when you didn't have anything else yeah. so that's been a really I guess like 
reassuring affirmation for me saying that it wasn't bad. I don't have to feel bad about what I did because it's what helped me. It's what I needed. Maybe not, but it's, that's what got me through those really difficult situations. So I really appreciate you bringing awareness to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for sharing that too. And just you're using this platform to, to normalize it. Right. And, you know, hopefully someone is, is listening and, and can hear this and, and stop shaming themselves for it and just recognize this is my brain is literally hardwired to get rid or avoid pain. Right. And so it's going to, again, give me all these different ways to do that. And some of these ways are going to move me towards the person I want to be and towards the life I want to have. And some of these ways are going to move me away from that. Right. So instead of this positive or negative or good or bad, you can just ask yourself is what I'm doing right now and how I'm choosing to cope. Is that moving me towards the life I want to have or away from it? And if the answer is away, then that's a clear indicator. Okay. I need to find some different coping skills. I think that's such a key, I guess, differentiation because like, to be clear, we're not promoting it. It's not something that we're encouraging, Mm -hmm. um, but it's coming at it from more of that neutral ground and promoting awareness and understanding around why people do it. And I really like that question, just asking, what can I do to better align me with my goals, my path? And for me, that wasn't it. So I learned how to, I guess, cope in healthier ways, more movement related, more spiritually related. So um, I think self-reflection questions are really, really key in any stage of our lives, but especially this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess just going along with that advice and words of wisdom, conversely with the supporter in these situations, what would you say to them? I would say that it's okay to not have all the answers. And it's okay to stumble on your words and if you do nothing but sit there with that person and just hold their hand, if you know, if that's okay with them or just be close with them while they're, you know, expressing and going through their, their crisis situation, that's okay. So again, take the pressure off of yourself to be the one who, you know, fixes them or fixes the situation or saves them or, if you're not a crisis worker, it's not your your role, right? So approach them as a human, right? Human to human. What do you need in this moment? I need connection, right? Because that's what humans need. We need it when we're not in crisis, but we need it even more so when we are in crisis. So how can I make this person, or how can I connect to this person right now in this moment? And that may be through silence and that's okay. Or that could be through, you know, gently rubbing their back if they're crying. Or that could be by saying, hey, I'm here with you. I'm not leaving you. Or that could be saying, I can just tell that you're in so much pain right now. I'm so sorry that you're experiencing so much pain. And just validating and reflecting. But you really want to just try and make your priority connection, not fixing. I love that. And I guess wrapping up, I want to ask a bit of a personal question, if that's okay. And I know I didn't send this to you in advance. Yeah, that's um, okay. <laughs> but I guess just with your professional experience and journey through all of this, what are some of the biggest things that maybe you see wrong in this system that many people don't understand about suicide from a more personal level, crisis intervention? Like, 
what has stuck out to you the most and something that you're passionate about, I guess, the final takeaway of this episode? I think just the stigma around suicide. I think that's what I'm most passionate about. It's just decreasing that stigma. As you're saying, we're not we're not here promoting it, saying this is a great option, go do it. But we just want to normalize it. Because if we don't, then the shame remains. And people who feel shame are less likely to seek support. And shame thrives in quietness and secrecy. Shame thrives in isolation. And so shame can't exist in the light, right? This is all kind of like Brene Brown's work. If anyone has ever heard of her, she's like my professional crush. I love so, her. <laughs> oh my gosh, she's amazing, right? So we want to normalize it so we can help people detach from the shame so that individuals can actually seek the support that they want and they need. And the, the bad thing about that is that our system is broken. So I'm not here saying just because you want support means you're going to get it. And that's the hard thing because there's lack of resources out there. So it's, I want people to, to be able to seek help. And I also want the system to be able to get there. I can't swear, but you know, you together. <laughs> okay, great. I want the system to get their shit together so that we have the proper resources to support the individuals. And so I will say one really good thing about social media is that there is lots of support accessible for free. They have to be kind of careful, right, of, of, of who you're following and, and things like that and making sure that they actually have credentials and know what they're talking about. But there's lots of support out there. So, you know, maybe while you're on a wait list for a certain program, because again, the system is severely underfunded, um, that you can tap into different types of supports, right? So I don't know if that answered your question or not, but. No, it did. And I love that you said that because I think, like you said, just talking about it brings such an awareness and acceptance of it so that we don't, you know, shy away when we hear the word or we don't cringe. We don't feel all these like feelings of pity and sorrow when we can, I think, come at it from more of a prevention standpoint. We can help people feel more accepting of what's going on with them, not like accepting it and just allowing it to happen, but accepting it and learning how to deal with it in a positive, healthy way. And I think just talking about it, allowing people to share their stories, it can really change our perception of what it is and come at it from a much better place, like from a systemic level even. Yeah, and let's just let's just reframe the way that we think about individuals who have suicidal ideation, thoughts of suicide. Let's reframe and stop looking at them like there's something wrong with them or that they're weak. And let's start looking at them for who they truly are, which is these like amazing, fearless, strong and courageous people that every day if they're having these thoughts, they choose I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go through life and it's going to be really hard today and it's going to suck and I'm going to choose to do that right? Like there's so much strength in that. And I just think that it's such a shame that we shame those individuals instead of recognizing and kind of praising them for their strength. Absolutely. Yeah. And to the people who have ever, or if you're currently battling your mind, who's fighting against you, just know how strong you actually are. Give yourself some credit when and where you can really take time to acknowledge yourself and what you've gone through in the past. And that's going to be harder on some days, but 
I think you yourself deserve to be validated to acknowledge what is happening, what you've gone through and what you can go through. It's also looking to the future as well, because there is a light. I always like to say at the end of the tunnel, even if you can't see it right now, it's there. And sometimes it just takes a little more work to get there. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. <laughs> well, Laura, This has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and expertise with us. I know this topic is very taboo and lots of trigger warnings on this episode, but hopefully when this episode comes out on World Suicide Prevention Day, we can raise a little more awareness on crisis situations themselves and how we can better support those who are in crisis. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I loved it. So I know we covered a lot in this conversation. I'm going to keep this very brief and short. Hopefully you have a lot to think about and take away after listening to this very important conversation. Thank you so much again to Laura for sharing all your knowledge and just for all the important work you do. I know you've helped so many people in these difficult situations. So just thank you for being that empathetic support that many people are looking for. Wrapping up, I just wanted again to point you towards the resources that are linked in the notes. Please feel free to utilize them or any other ones that are out there. There are many. If you yourself are looking for support, if you want to share it with someone else who might need it, or maybe even just to learn more, those are there for your use, so please use them as you wish. Suicide, self-harm, just poor mental health, all these things have been really misconstrued, I guess I want to say, um, over the years, especially in the media and just the way that we talk about these things. So that's why I just wholeheartedly believe in these topics and having these conversations, because I think it can really change the way that we think about them, which changes the way that we actually address them and go to support others and helps with some of that self-stigma as well for anybody who's going through it. So Lots of goals and wishes for this episode that it does help reduce some of those things. One last thing that I wanted to note as part of this episode is that many people think to call 911 right away as soon as any crisis arises, and that's something that I have always had the privilege of doing as a white Canadian, but calling 911 or using these crisis services are not always actually the best option for some communities. Historically, Black individuals or Indigenous peoples have had negative experiences with calling the police, and that's had negative repercussions on their mental health and the level of service that they actually receive. So I did just want to highlight that because if any of us ever find ourselves in a situation where we're helping someone, we need to kind of start challenging that automatic thought to call 911 to get them help because there could be different ways of actually getting them that help. And I think you being kind of that first line of support is really crucial because like Laura said as well, just being there is so helpful for these people who are in crisis. So just one thing I want you to keep in mind. And lastly, just on the topic of suicide, self-harm, If you are currently struggling, have struggled in the past, or have a loved one who is struggling, I know how hard it can be, how tough things might feel, and how overwhelming all your thoughts and feelings may be. But please just know that you are not alone. Even if you don't have a close support system in your life, I am somebody that you can talk to. There are several 
allies or people of support out there that are willing to sit there and be that shoulder that you might need, even if it's not advice, if you just need someone to vent to. There are people out there willing to sit through your pain with you and help you try to get to that better state of mental health. So please just know that. Again, if this episode was helpful or you really enjoyed it, please feel free to share it with your community or someone in your life who might benefit from this information. I think Laura gave us a lot of great information to take away and to just have in the back of our minds if we ever do encounter situations such as these. And with that being said, there will not be an episode next week. I just need a week off, I think. I've been doing a lot with my new job and everything, so I'm going to take the week to really just reset and hopefully give more people time to catch up on this one, because this is one that I think a lot of people can benefit from. So thank you so, so much for supporting The Revolutionized Mind and for having an interest in these topics. It means more than you know, and even just by listening, you are helping to change the conversation around suicide and mental health. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and I will be back in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye.